0: Man, Thanks, guys. Good morning. Good to see you. How's it going? Uh, guys, um, it says in 2 Corinthians, it says in 2 Corinthians, uh, we walk by faith and not by sight. You've heard that? All right, we walk by faith and not by sight. And as I've thought about that this week, And um, as I've thought about Genesis 22, which was just read for us, I've concluded uh, that this truth uh, is probably uh, the most, if not near the very top of truths, that you and I tend to ignore here in the West. Uh, We not only want to walk by sight and not faith, we not only have that desire. Um, But we somehow, in different situations and seasons of our life, uh, we might even convince ourselves that we should walk by sight and not faith, that it is wise to walk by sight and not faith, that it is somehow even godly to walk by sight and not faith. And so I'm curious this morning, are you willing, I mean, are you really willing to trust God? Are you really willing to obey God and follow Him? if what he was asking you didn't make any sense? Are you willing to follow God even if what he's asking you doesn't make sense? And if you're able to do that, I'm just curious, what do you think it would take for you to do that? What do you think it's gonna take in order for you to actually do that? Uh, Today we come to Genesis 22. It's honestly one of the most iconic stories. Not only in the Bible, it's definitely up there with like Jonah and the whale and David and Goliath, you know. You've seen the uh, the felt boards of this growing up, I'm certain of it, right? If you grew up in the church at all, it's not only one of the most iconic stories in the Bible, but it's one of the most iconic stories in all of ancient literature, quite honestly. Um, I remember years ago, uh, I was like 13 years ago, I was in um, modern-day Turkey right outside of Ephesus, and we went to one of the first um, churches that was ever built. It was now in ruins, and there was this like... Uh, fragmented piece of the original pulpit. It was like this marble sort of pulpit thing, and uh, it was fascinating because beautifully engraved in the marble of this pulpit was this scene. It was Abraham offering up his son Isaac. Right, this is an iconic story. I mean, even the great um, theologian philosopher Soren Kierkegaard even wrote his famous book *Fear and Trembling*, which was his sort of processing and writing out his reflections upon this very story himself. Guys, this is the story that Abraham is known for. This is what we think of. And in this story, uh, we see God ask Abraham to do something that not only doesn't make much sense, but it would require that Abraham would hold nothing back from God. It would require that he could hold nothing back from God. And so what I want us to see this morning, this will be on the screen just to help you, is that when you see how God has provided for you, You will be willing to give him anything that he asks of you, even when it doesn't make sense. That's what we see in this story. And so I want to do something a little bit differently. I'm sorry for you note-takers. This is probably frustrating to you. Uh, I just want to walk through the story, okay? I don't really have three great points for you like I try to normally have for you, Um, but I just want this story to really stand out. But more than that, I want God to really stand out And after we walk through this story, I just want to ask you, so what? Like, what should our response be to this story? And so, the first four verses, I think we see this test that God gives to Abraham. Read with me in verse one. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Let me just take a moment to address the question that many of you are probably asking, uh, how in the world could God command something like this? I mean, God told him to go kill his son, okay? Uh, We need to know right away that this was not just a command to murder Isaac. Okay, that wasn't the command, because if that was the case, Abraham could have just killed him whenever, like in the tent or wherever they're hanging out, right? Something much deeper is going on, and it's this. Because the offering, you guys, of the firstborn in the Old Testament it symbolized the debt that humanity owed to God. So the offering of the firstborn means. And so throughout the Old Testament, God lays claim to our firstborn because it represents our very lives. So in the Hebrew sacrificial system, God required the firstborn of the cattle, the firstborn of the sheep to be sacrificed to him. If you were um, a farmer, right, he would require the first fruits of your harvest, right, of the grain. Um, And so the only way that you could spare the life of the firstborn was to make a sacrifice in the firstborn's place, So we see this in the Exodus story. When uh, Israel is is enslaved in Egypt at the Passover, God brings death to the firstborn of every single household that does not have the blood of the firstborn lamb over the doorposts. So in other words, the life of the firstborn was forfeit unless some sort of redeeming sacrifice was made. Okay? This will be on the screen. This might help you. Um, Tim Keller said, If Abraham had thought, God had told him, uh, Kill Sarah, and then I will know that you love me he would have never done that. He would have concluded that he was hallucinating because God would not have commanded senseless murder like that. And God would not have said it because it would have been murder. But when God said, offer Isaac, Abraham knew exactly what that meant, the firstborn. It represented his very life and the debt every man owes to God. Okay, so what this commanded. Uh, by God was representing, uh, was something so foundational for our lives, Uh, and here in a minute we'll see that it's even foundational for eternal life, okay? So, So stay with me. But right now I want you to know and see that God wasn't going to have Abraham kill his son. We know that the Bible celebrates life Uh, From the unborn to every person in life, so killing people, killing children is detestable in the eyes of God. He says not to murder. He gives that command, and so we get a tip here that this is the case right away, because the writer of Genesis relieves us a little bit from the outset of the story, because it says what in the very first line? God tested Abraham. God tested Abraham. Offering Isaac was a test for Abraham. Any good uh, test takers in here? Any good test takers in here? Anybody? We're rolling our eyes at you right now, Kosky, right? Seriously. Um, But really, uh, a test is something we all know, right, that draws out of you what's already inside of you, right? That's what a test is. Uh, It doesn't give you new information. You don't learn things in a test, right? It shows someone else, like your teacher, your professor, or yourself, it shows these people, everybody around you, what you've already done with the information that you have, right? That's what a test is that we're aware of. Guys, but God's tests are actually really different because God's tests don't just reveal what's inside of you. God's tests reveal something about God. God's tests always reveal who he is, what's inside of him. And we have a really good example of this, okay? Uh, A great example in Exodus chapter 16, So God's people have just been led out of slavery in Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness. They're wondering how they're going to survive. And God says, I will provide for you daily food from heaven. I'm going to call it manna, right, which manna means what is it? And God says, I will provide for you daily manna. And so what you'll do is you'll walk outside miraculously. There'll be this food on the ground. I want you to go out and, and to gather up for yourself the food you need just for that day. If you hoard more than that, because you're worried I'm not gonna provide for you, that'll spoil, okay? So God does this, this is how God provides for them. And in chapter 16 of, uh, verse four of chapter 16 in Exodus, it says this, God did this to test Israel. That's what it says. The test was would they walk in obedience to God, would they believe that God would provide? Or would they not trust in God to provide for their needs the following day and just hoard more and see it spoil? And so those who were faithful, guys, they not only proved they were faithful by leaving their tent and gathering just what they needed for the day, they not only proved that they were faithful, but in the process of daily proving that they were faithful, they learned daily that God was faithful. Every day they walked out and they learned God is faithful. He provided again. The test always revealed something about God. They learned about God and they learned who they were. Something similar is happening here with Abraham. This test was meant to draw out of him whether or not he was faithful, whether or not he could and would follow God even when it didn't make sense. But more than this, this was a test to prove that God was faithful. That's what's happening here. So God is, is testing Abraham. And just as an aside, I was thinking about this this week. I think some of us, myself included, I was thinking, I was like, man, I really need a category for testing in my life. We need this category that God does test us. At times when we're walking with God. So, nonetheless, God is testing Abraham, but God even gives him the command to go, and Abraham responds right away with, Here am I. Here am I. Here am I is not Hebrew for, Hello, how's it going? Like, good to see you, God. That's not what this means. This is actually a way of saying, I stand ready for your command. That's what this means. It's a statement of surrender. Abraham, before he's even told what to do, he's saying, I'm surrendered to God. He's being tested. Yet he doesn't know that he is. We know that he is. He doesn't know that he is. He doesn't have that benefit like you and I do. So there's this real great tension in this story because it's a horrific request. It's, it's really hard to stomach. It doesn't make sense. It's confusing. Guys, this is a difficult story to ponder because one of life's greatest pains in life is, is losing a child, Parents will tell you that this is one of the worst thoughts that they could have. I'm sure it's true for Abraham. I mean, Isaac is described here many times as his only son, who he loves. It says, who you love. I'm sure that when Abraham received this command, he would have thought, man, I'd rather offer myself than have to offer my son. And you see this here. There's a reference to Isaac being described as the son Ten times in the story, in these 19 verses, there's a description of Isaac being the son ten times, and three times it says, your only son. So the repetition of this just compiles a sense of grief and sadness for Abraham. I mean, it was, it was honestly quite difficult to even like, process this, this week, even as a parent, because I mean, we, we know, we cherish our children, we love them. Let me just say, if, if you were older, like Abraham and Sarah, and this was your only son... I'm sure it would prove to be the case all the more. I mean, Isaac was it for these two. He was it, right? They weren't having more kids. They had no more kids to, to fall back on. But more than that, Isaac was more than a son. He was the son of promise, right? He was the one who through him redemption and, and salvation would come for God's people, that was the promise. So on the altar, Abraham, you guys, he had to lay down his son, but he also had to lay down his hope. He had to lay down his future and the hope of the world, quite honestly. And so you and I are meant to feel the tension and the pain of this. And we get this even more so if you, if you see what's happening here because the story really slows down. Starting in verse 2, the descriptions increase. It's causing you to slow down. And then you get to verse 3, and the pace just slams to a crawl. We see the faithful yet painful faith of Abraham. It says he rose early in the morning and he just started preparing for the journey. He didn't delay. He didn't gather up all of his friends and say, That's what I think I heard from God. Like, what do you think? Think this is a good idea? Think this is a bad idea? Am I hearing this clearly? Like, what do you think? You speak into this. So he didn't do that. He just responded with obedience. He starts cutting the wood. He cuts the wood. He, and honestly, the amount of wood that he would need to cut would have been in proportion to the size of Isaac. That's the amount of wood he would need. And Isaac, scholars say, would have been about 15 years old at this time. So just think, every single blow of the axe would have been a blow to the heart of Abraham as he's doing this. I mean, I mean can, you, can you imagine this? Imagine sizing up your teenage son... Asking yourself all along, how much wood do I need to consume him? These verses are very descriptive. They're very slow. They're very silent. We don't know what Abraham was thinking. We aren't told about his feelings. We're only told about his simple obedience. Then verse four begins with on the third day. On the third day. On day three. Honestly, I think in three days, I could have talked myself out of this. I mean, three days. Like day one, maybe I would have rose early, but day three, I'm like, well, oh, maybe I misheard. You know? This seems kind of difficult to comprehend. Right? Day three. And I, honestly, guys, I think right here, this is a great principle of what faith is. Because true faith, I, I, we know, is not shown in our initial response. True faith is shown on day three or day two. True faith isn't shown when I just walk out of this room on a Sunday. True faith is shown in how I'm living my life on Wednesday. We know this, right? Some of you know the feeling of what it's like to begin so well in faith only to kind of give up or rationalize or or move away from what you were convicted about only a few days before that. We've known this. We've experienced this. Maybe God's asked you something repeatedly and you're convicted about it, but then day two or three or whatever comes and you begin to rationalize it. You're like, well, I don't know. Maybe he, he doesn't really mean this because, I mean, look at this, right? We're walking by sight again, right? We're walking by or we're moved by our feelings, right? If you're anything like me, you might be driven by your own feelings, even, even over your convictions. But quite honestly, as I was even confronted this week, we might see that how we feel about doing the will of God is quite honestly, it's irrelevant, so we see here in the life of Abraham our feelings guys do not equal the voice of God I mean certainly we hope that they will overlap certainly we hope that there's going to be times where we're following God and we have this strong desire to do so but it's not out of question that we would have to follow God and it would go against how we're feeling in the moment I can't imagine that Abraham is like really desiring to do this but yet his, his emotions don't dominate him our feelings don't, don't determine whether or not God is saying this or not. They're not the trump card. Because true faith is shown on the third day. And we see this with Abraham. God called him. Abraham said, yes, Lord. There was no arguing. There was no deliberation. God is not a used car, car salesman uh, to Abraham. Right? We, he doesn't barter with God. He doesn't talk God down. He doesn't speak. He just speaks. Abraham obeys, and we trust him. That's what we do. That's what followers of Jesus do. We hear God, and we obey God. That's the the call. This event shows, guys, Abraham's simple obedience. But we also see that his simple obedience was propped up by his trust in the faithfulness of God. This is how he did this. He obeyed God because of who he is. Look at verse 5. It says... Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself The lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Isaac's 15. This had to be Isaac's willingness, quite honestly. I'm sure Isaac, a 15 year old, could take out a 100 year old frail man, right? Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. Uh, so I'm curious, how does Abraham sustain his faithfulness over the course of three days? How does he do that? When life doesn't make sense, how do you stay on the path? I mean, look at this guy. Verse 5, he tells the other two guys that he brings with him, stay here, we're going to go over there and worship, and we're going to come again to you. That's what he says. He says, then we see the all-too-painful question of Isaac in verse 7. Daddy, where's the lamb? Oh, don't worry, son. Uh, God will provide the lamb for himself. Why, why is Abraham so confident? Was this just wishful thinking? Is he lying? Uh, did he think, oh, God loves me so much, he would not allow bad things to happen to me? God loves me that much. What is the source of Abraham's confidence? When life didn't make sense, when the silence was sinking in, how did Abraham get through it? What was Abraham's anchor? Meaning the thing that he returned to again and again and again to keep him grounded, to make sense of things, to keep him going. What did he do? Well, quite honestly, we know what he did. He believed in the promises of God. He believed in the word of God. He remembered, Genesis 18, 19, right before this, how God said to him, I have chosen Isaac so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. He said, I have chosen Isaac so that I will bring all this blessing I've promised you to you. He's like, I remember that. And this will be on the screen. I mean, if, if Isaac perished, God's word would have been false and his promises were weak. Guys, friends, you can count on God and depend on the word of God. And we see that Abraham learned how to do this, even when life was confusing. He clung to God's promises, it says here on the screen in Hebrews 11, Says by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and who, he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, "Through Isaac shall your offspring be named." He considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. As we see, what Abraham was doing for three days, in the dark silence, he's been reminding himself of the promises of God. He's been rehearsing, God, you said, God, you promised. God, I know you said, God, I know you promised. It was God's faithfulness, you guys, that propped him up in his own obedience. This is what it was, this was his anger, this was his source for strength. Guys, what drove Abraham up the mountain not was the strength of his character. It wasn't that Abraham was saying, I can do this, I can do this, I'm awesome. It wasn't him. What drove him up the mountain is him saying, God is faithful, God said this, God promised this, I know God's trustworthy. That's what's driving him up the mountain. And the same thing, the only thing that will drive you onward through difficult times in your life is not you saying, I can do this, I'm awesome, it's saying, no, God said this, God is faithful, God promised me this, right? Onward, on the third day, that's how we do the same thing. That's how we get through. It's not on the strength of our character, but it's in our unwavering conviction in the goodness and in the promises of God. So Isaac crawls up onto the altar, and then verse 10 says, Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. I mean, wow. What a scene. I mean, this is like, if this is a movie, you wouldn't even want to watch this. Hopefully. Right? He's going to really do it. He's like really going to follow through. But wait, verse 11. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, said, Abraham, Abraham. He says, here I am. I'm surrendered. The angel said, do not lay your hand on the boy. Do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Guys, The angel interrupts, and here we have it. Abraham's test revealed that he feared God. This kind of fear of God does not mean fear of punishment. It means the concept of having a deep, abiding sense of reverence and awe and adoration. It's this genuine sense that God is the greatest in the room, that he dominates. It's the weightiness of the reality of God over anything else. He fears God. But honestly, guys, this also reveals something supremely significant about God. Because remember, this is what tests do. They reveal something not about necessarily you. They reveal something about God. And it tells you what it reveals about God. It reveals that he will provide. It reveals that he provides. Look with me in verse 13. He says, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. As what you name a place uh, is, is extremely significant in Hebrew literature. Because it encapsulates or it summarizes the significance of what happened there. And so isn't it interesting that they call this place the Lord provides? They don't call this place Abraham is awesome. They don't call this place how Abraham obeyed. They don't even call this place Abraham feared God. Abraham's not even in the equation. He's not even in the naming. They call the name of this place God will Provide, God will provide, the Lord provides. The Lord, guys, he provided a ram instead of Isaac. He provided a ram in the thicket, meaning it was a pure lamb still, wasn't injured. He provided a ram instead of Isaac, so that Isaac would live. He provided a ram so that Isaac would live. God's provision of the ram is not just a turning point in our story. You guys, it is actually the centerpiece of the story because Abraham's faith is an excellent model to follow, certainly. His obedience is remarkable, and we can draw valuable lessons from his life. However, the original reader of this story, the original reader of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, they would have identified most not with Abraham's faith, but they would have identified most with the salvation of Isaac. Why? Because as descendants from Abraham and Isaac, they would have been keenly aware that God's provision of the ram is what enabled them to actually be a people. It's what enabled them to live in the land of promise and to receive the bountiful blessings of the offspring of Abraham. So if there was no Isaac, then there would be no Israel The salvation is the focus of our text. It's further supported, honestly, by the conclusion of our text. The previous promises that God has made to Abraham that we've seen throughout the course of the summer so far have all centered around Abraham. But here, when God reiterates his covenant, the renewal of the covenant here, it's all future-focused. It's no longer really about Abraham. It's about the future. It's about the offspring. Read with me in verse 17. The angel says, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemy. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. He says, not in you, but in your offspring. All those blessings, guys, were hanging in the balance when Isaac was laying on the altar. But God provided the ram so that Isaac, so that Israel, so that the people of God, so that many of you in this room would be blessed. See, it's in God's provision of this ram that he reveals something awesome. I mean, in the true sense of the word awesome and amazing, in the true sense of the word amazing, not in the way that I use the word in the truest sense of the word amazing, he reveals something amazing and awesome about himself. He reveals that he can be trusted to provide for the redemption of his people. And if he could be trusted to provide for that, then he could be trusted to provide for anything. Guys, this is like the climax of the story, but in all actuality, Genesis 22 has this significant anticlimax to it. Because we're like, where was the lamb? My Abraham said God was going to provide a lamb for himself. See, God's provision for the redemption of his people, guys, it actually reaches the ultimate climax. Genesis 22 reaches its ultimate climax in the New Testament because we see centuries later that another son who was born of a miraculous birth, another one and only son, guys, who the father loved, he too would walk up a mountain carrying heavy beams of wood. And again, that son would willingly crawl on top of the wood. He would willingly be bound on that wood. But this time, however, you guys, the knife would not be stopped in midair. But it would slash straight through the heart of Jesus, the eternal Son of God. John 3.16, famous, right? I mean, everybody seems to know this verse. But it's well known for a reason, John picks up on this. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's the term in our Genesis 22 passage. That whoever believes in Jesus will not perish like Isaac. Right? Will not die. Should not die. But what? Live. But not just live. Live eternally. Live and never died. John's gospel, guys, is alluding to Genesis 22. So, the lamb, Abraham said God would provide in verse 8. Remember that lamb that never came? Right? He he said God's going to provide a lamb. But what happened? God gave a ram. God didn't give a lamb. God gave a ram. So, where's the lamb? We only have a ram here. Where's the lamb? The lamb that Abraham said God would provide, the provision that the people of God always looked forward to. Verse 14 says, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. God's people hung on to this for centuries. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Where is this lamb? That lamb is Jesus. He's the ultimate fulfillment of God's provision of the salvation for his people. That's why when Jesus shows up on the scene in the Gospels and he goes out to the river by John the Baptist, how does John the Baptist introduce Jesus? He says what? Behold the what? Lamb of God who comes to what? Take away the sins of the world. because Jesus died on the cross in our place, we have life. As the ram was the substitute for Isaac, Jesus is our substitute. Our sins have been laid on Jesus. So all the bad stuff that you've ever done, all the bad stuff that you've ever even thought about doing, all the bad stuff that you ever will do, right? all the times that you and I miss the mark, all the times that we, you and I fall short of the glory of God, that sin has been laid on Jesus, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that you might live. God has provided. God has provided. So what should our response be to this story? I mean, you're like, I've heard this story a thousand times. So what? You might never say that out loud, but I'm certain some of you are thinking that. I want you just to imagine it's like a hot day like today. You're out here on the Willamette. You're tubing, right? You're just floating, getting sunburnt, right? Uh, you're not wearing a life jacket, and you fall out, and you realize you can't swim, Okay? I don't know why you're doing this. Okay, this is terrible. If you, can't, just a news, if you can't swim, wear a life jacket, okay? But let's just say you can't swim, you're not wearing a life jacket, you're confident. It's not, you know, crazy out there or something. But you fall out, you can't swim. Let me ask you, what do you need? What do you need? Well, you need someone to jump in and save you, right? right? You need someone to save you. But let me ask you, what if someone actually did? What if someone really jumped in and saved you? How would you feel about that? How would you respond to that person? Even if you're not a hugger, I'm guessing you're giving a hug, right? At minimum. But I mean, how would you respond to them later down the line? If they ever asked you to do anything for them, how would you respond? Well, I bet you'd say, here am I. I'm I'm surrendered at your service. Name it. Guys, do we see how radical this story is to our world? Because every belief system, you guys, every religion in the world looks out upon us as we're drowning in life. As we're drowning and we're asking questions like, what is my purpose? We're asking, how do I fix my sin problem?" And everybody in the world is, is telling us what to do. They're saying, hey, you should paddle harder, kick your legs. You're tired, float on your back, right? We're being shouted from the shore all these things that we could be doing, right? Here's five ways to improve your life. Here's some ways that you might be able to get to God, right? Or if you do these things, hopefully you can make yourself more acceptable to God, right? It's, it's shouting from the shore, It's shouting from the shore, but here's the thing. When you're drowning, you don't need to be told what to do, do you? You need someone to save you. You need someone to jump in and grab you. Guys, do you see, Jesus is the only one. He is the only one who doesn't stand at the shore and just tell you what to do. He jumps in and he saves you, and when he jumped in that river to save you, he knew that it would cost him his life in the process, He knew he was going to drag you to shore, but it would cost him his life in the process. And if Jesus, guys, has done this for you, if God has provided for your greatest need, then won't he also be able to provide for you in your lesser needs? This will be on the screen, uh, Romans 8.32. It says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How? I mean, if God has provided, then will He not provide? My friends, do you see how radically this will change your life? I mean, if we trust God that He will provide, if we've seen how He has provided, and gosh, if we've seen how good He is and how He has provided, then it really kind of makes it simple. It really kind of makes it easier At least to respond to anything he ever asks me to give up for him. Anything that he asks me to let go of. Because, gosh, he gave up everything for me. Gosh, Isaac was Abraham's dream. Isaac was what Abraham had longed for his whole life, a biological son with Sarah. He was the miracle. And yet he was willing to give him to God if that was what God was asking for. So I just want to ask you, man, what is what is it that if God were to ask you for it this morning, it would just seem impossible to give Him? I mean, is there anything in your life that's sort of like off limits to God? What's off limits? Is there anything that's too important? It's too ultimate. It's too precious. That if God were just to say, release that, you would say, uh uh. You can have this though, but not that. I mean, maybe it is your your finances. And you feel conviction to be more generous on day one, but then day two or three comes and you're like rationalizing everything. You're like, well, man, it wouldn't be wise of me. But we're not trusting God to provide. Maybe it's your future. God's calling you down a different path. God's calling you overseas. I don't know. But it's not what you dreamt up for yourself your whole life. Maybe it's comfort. Like, well, this is how I always get my release. God's saying, what if you gave that up? You're like, well, I don't know how I'd ever get comfort. He's like, well, how about you try me? What if He's just asking for your mornings? You're like, well, I don't know, I'd have to give up my evenings, right? What well, he's asking for your evenings? Maybe it's your free time. Maybe it's your schedule. Maybe it's your image. You're trying so hard to fit in, right? Maybe it's control or your perceived control over life, maybe it's control over kids, whatever it is. Maybe it's your reputation, it's your platform. Maybe it's your, your feelings. I don't I don't even know. You know. What is it that if God were to, were to say, let go of that for me, you would say, not that. Sorry. So beyond the screen, Abraham Kuyper famously said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So we who have been saved by the Lamb, you guys. How do we live? We seek to hear his voice. We rise early in the morning to follow him, even when it doesn't make sense, because we know for a fact that he is good. How do we know that? Because he's provided. He is really provided. And if he is provided for our greatest need, then he will surely provide for our lesser needs. Um, This last week, my wife and I got away for three days, two nights to Seattle. Uh, We got to, like, sleep in. We got away from our kids. Sorry, I should clarify that. No kids, right? We had meals that were eaten in peace. We didn't have to say, eat your food, sit down, don't go to the bathroom. Like, literally, it was... It was wonderful, okay? We just hung out in Seattle. We, we did so much. We laughed. We, we, again, we slept in. If I didn't tell you that again, we slept in. It was great. Um, we ate amazing food. And I asked people before we left, like, hey, recommendations, give them to me. And I had so many people recommend that we go uh, to this Italian place in this alley called uh, Pink Tour. Maybe you've been there. And we're like, let's do it. And we called. We can only get a reservation for 9 p.m., I was like, I've never had a reservation for 9 p.m. since I was in college, okay? But we're like, hey, we're doing it, right? So we we go, and we feasted, and it was honestly the best Italian food I've ever had. I was so full, it was so good. Let me tell you, after that meal, the waitress came over and said, do you want some dessert? The dessert looked amazing, and guess what I said? No. You were thinking I was gonna say yes, but no, I said no, right? I said no, why, because I'm full. I'm so full. You could have offered me like the most glorious vegan bowl on the planet, right? I would have said no. You could have offered me in and out right? I would have said no. Maybe this delicious prime steak is like your thing. I would have said no. Why? I would have said I'm good. I'm so good, why? Because I'm full. What I'm trying to say is guys, uh, we are full. As we are so full, God has given you everything that you ultimately need. You are full. And when you are full, you will be free to give. You will be free to give. You will even be able to pass on dessert, right? When you cling, you will cling to things when you're hungry, when you're not satisfied, You'll be willing to let go when you're full. Guys, and in Jesus, we are full. You are so full. I'm gonna end with this, it's my favorite hymn. It's on the screen, by Isaac Watts. Sums it up perfectly. Uh, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt On all my pride. See, look, behold, from his hands, his head, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life. My all. He says, Man, when I look at the cross, when I survey the cross, the lamb that God would provide for Himself, when I sit there and I look at the cross and I see how God has provided, He says, If I had everything in the world, were the whole realm of nature mine, if I had everything, that would be a present far too small to give to God. Why? Because love's so amazing and divine, like this. It demands my soul, my life, my all. Not demand, meaning command, give it to me. Demand, meaning deserve. It's natural. Say it one last time. When you see how God has provided for you, you'll be willing to give him anything he ever asks of you, even when it doesn't make sense. Because you know he's good. Father, that's my prayer for my life this morning. God, that that we wouldn't sit here in this moment and just think, what do I need to give up, God? But we would just see how amazing your love, how divine your love has been for us day in and day out. God, that you would just get so big in our lives right now, Jesus. That this story would sink in, that it wouldn't be a distant story, but a very near one right now. Jesus, just get big in our minds, in our hearts. That we would see how you've provided for us, God. That we might trust whatever it is right now, God, that any of us in this room are thinking, maybe you won't provide that for me. Maybe we, maybe we just leave this place with greater faith. God, if you wouldn't withhold Jesus from us, may we know and believe that you could give us all things. So, God, I ask you just to move in our time and response now. Move for your glory's sake, for your renown in our lives, in the city, and in this world. In Christ's name, amen. Guys, there's